Welcome to the Farmcast. I'm Emily Schwing. And I'm Dana Shinners. Today we have the unique opportunity to sit down with Vegilution supporter and food activist, Pat Nichols. Okay, great. Um, so we have a very special guest today with us on the Farmcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, I'm Pat Nichols. Um, I'm a member of Slow Food South Bay and also a member of the Santa Clara County Food System Alliance. And I've been following uh, Vegilution since 2008 when they told us about their prospects for the farm at an eat-in we had at Slow Food. Um, we were, we were holding it on the San Jose campus where they had just graduated and we were lobbying then for an increase in the money given to food, school lunches in the, in the farm bill. Well, thank you very much for being here. We're very excited to have you. So when did you first start gardening? Right after World War II, my dad came home and gave me a plot and I grew radishes, which was the best selection I could have made because they're very fast and they were, they were delicious. I've um, been gardening ever since. I even tried to garden uh, when I was a freshman in college in a window box. Again, radishes, and they all rotted. So I learned something. So how did you get involved in the local food movement in San Jose? I got involved because when I came out here in 1962, I had my first child. And um, he was quite healthy. I fed him myself. and. Um, <laughs> I was quite surprised when I went to visit a friend whose child was the same age and had come down with hepatitis because she had had so many bouts with uh, penicillin. And so I started thinking about what the kid was eating and then I started thinking about what I ate. And about that time Rachel Carson's book came out, Silent Spring, and that just turned my life around. Um, My dad had died at 49 of cancer. Um, He had sprayed his roses with a combination of malathion and chloridane, which Rachel Carson said was separately, they're they're not so bad, but together they're lethal. And so I watched um, the the orchard people spraying great plumes of pesticide overhead, and I decided I had to help my kid be healthy. So I started growing an organic garden, and at that time, all the books were based on East Coast gardening, and so there were some tremendous failures. I got involved with Slow Food South Bay after I uh, retired from teaching at San Jose State. Um, I had just finished a book on my native South Carolina's language contact, and I was still interested in food. I'd had an organic garden for um, almost 50 years by then, but um, I had discovered common ground um, in Palo Alto. Um, right about the time I got my degree from Stanford in 76 and the whole field had changed. At last they were talking about the soils in California. I took some classes um, from Common Ground when I retired in 2000 and just learned all kinds of things about the soils, about the weather and uh, changed my gardening completely. I started double digging. I started when in the first drought in the 80s I realized that the stuff I'd brought from the East Coast wasn't really meant to live here and had showed me that. So I put in native plants and so I had a combination after um, retiring um, 
in native plant hedgerows, sort of like the way you have here at the farm, plus the organic gardening, the double digging, which was more productive in the, than anything I'd ever done before. And um, as I said before, when I realized that slow food was going to lobby for better lunch, lunches, more, more money for the lunchroom, then I got active in, in slow food and uh, started learning how to make things taste good as well as, as well as grow well. I was never a very good cook um, until I started learning from my slow food people. It sounds like uh, you had quite an education career. Can you talk a little bit about what your degrees were? I started out in English um, and um, I came out here with um, almost a master's in English and began teaching at one of the community colleges here in um, the Bay Area. It was the middle of the Vietnam War and policemen were coming and grabbing students from the classroom if they hadn't registered to uh, for the draft. And I began to realize that the students who failed English were dialect speakers. They were black and brown kids who got sent immediately to the front lines when they flunked out of college. And so I came back um, to San Jose State and got a second master's in linguistics, just trying to figure out um, how to cope with, um, how, to, how to help those kids because the English literature degree that I had um, wasn't doing it. And then um, I tried to get a full-time job at um, this unnamed college and they told me the job required a man. This was a year before there was legal, <laughs> there was a law preventing that at any level. <laughs> and so I had the choice of whether to sue the college, I had I'd saved $6,000 for my teaching, or to batter my way into Stanford. And a, a teacher helped me get into Stanford. And I chose to study at that time linguistics and, um, and learned on the one hand why everybody was laughing at me because of the way I talked. And then second, I learned a lot about how you learn second languages, and particularly second dialects. It's very difficult to learn a second dialect, and particularly the academic dialect if you've never heard it before. And so I spent my career at San Jose State um, teaching teachers how to teach English as a second language, and teaching teachers that just because I talk the way I do, I was not dumb and they should not judge their students as being dumb when they came in speaking the, a different way from them. That was a hard sell. It took me 20 years to figure out ways to put that point across, and for some I didn't, but that, that was pretty much my career. So how has San Jose changed from when you originally moved here to today? Um, when I started teaching there in 1977, many of the English faculty were still teaching to the Smothers Brothers. <laughs> Although I love them dearly, um, they hadn't realized who was it sitting in their classrooms. So um, in a study that several of, three of us untenured professors did at the time, we um, had evidence that a third of our students at that time in the early 80s were not speaking English as their first language at the age of six. Now it's way over uh, 50 percent and um, I, I say to my friends the world has come to us and it's just um, 
the faculty has changed, the student body has changed, and you see it here at Vegilution. I mean, your population is just a mix of all kinds of um, ethnic backgrounds, language backgrounds. We have one of the richest language backgrounds in, uh, in the United States. It makes it difficult for teachers, but it makes it quite a learning experience for everybody. And I think the garden, if I could pass on to Vegilution, is where you can have equal access to an experience that everybody shares, namely growing, growing and eating food, and where you can learn from each other about different ways of eating. Um, I've gotten interested in, in that part of my own background and, and working now on that. Why in 2015 in San Jose is farming relevant? and what makes Vegilution relevant. In a word, why farming is relevant in San Jose is that there's so many kids who don't know a pea from a bean. Um, I, and I hired a very good um, high school gardener to help me with my double digging. Um, she was in an FAA program, Future Farmers of America used to be the name of it, and she had very little experience with um, plants. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The kids don't know where milk comes from. They don't know what a good piece of fruit tastes like. I mean, their taste buds are formed now. If they work in a garden, they come in and taste what they've grown. There's just no, no two ways about that. I've seen that over and over. And I think the children are what, what's relevant. Um, their education is just woeful, woefully lacking if they don't know about the basic um, a basic food source and preparation because that's the, that's the basis of life. We talked a little bit on our walk around the farm about this, but as someone who also enjoys um, studying language, I wonder if through your study of language you ever found any very interesting intersections um, related to agriculture or land use or, you know, especially in the South since you were studying it. The, South Carolina dialect if, if through those language studies land and agriculture came up often. Now that I'm working on a book on food in early South Carolina, the contact between Africans, Europeans, and Native Americans, I've gone back to some of my old notes and every time food comes up I made a note when I was going through looking for language. And the second point is that it's really one of the saddest things I've uncovered. Literacy is connected with big agriculture. It's connected with um, people having free time to learn to read and write. Uh, and when you have big agriculture, you have um, the beginnings of slavery, indentured um, servants, um, petroleum-based um, agriculture, and in a word, social inequality. And so I'm having a hard time adjusting to that, that combination. When you get these massive grain crops, you get poor nutrition because you get um, the, the lower classes being fed these massive amounts of grain. And you sure want to edit this. Naomi Klein has written yeah. a book recently about the link between capital. And I'm thinking now this is the patriarchy. I mean, the, the whole, that is such a key to everything. What are you most excited for Vegilution to accomplish here 
in San Jose, but more specifically in East San Jose. You're doing such great research. I mean, that, that's what I'm excited about, the no-till stuff and what you can do with, uh, with the land. But what's overridingly important is the social outreach that you're doing. And the combination of the research on food and growing food the old way and growing food that actually I think will be more nutritious once you, once you, once you measure it. And, and that, that's my sense of what, where you're moving. And how there's so much to learn from these recent immigrants, especially if they're connected to their grandparents and great-grandparents. And, um, you know, getting, I think, oral histories from how things were done, how things were cooked, would be really good. Um, I'm excited about the potential. Well, it has been a pleasure to sit with these. We've got four women in the Vegilution Farm Sand just talking about agriculture, and I'm always pleasantly surprised and excited when we start talking about agriculture and it turns into talking about culture and history, and it's such just a rich topic. We'd like to end by asking you what you think the connection between farming and cooking is and how that plays out in your kitchen. Well. If you're growing a garden, I guess I, I'd change it, could I change it to garden? Yes. If you're growing a garden, you've got fresh um, ingredients immediately and you don't have to buy a hunk of dill that will last three families <laughs> when you're making a, a chicken soup that calls for dill. And I think having a, a kitchen garden, uh, which is what most of our ancestors had, um, allows you to have the freshest and best taste tasting food as well as nutritious that you can possibly have. Anything else you want to talk about? No, you, you pretty much got it out of me. <laughs> <laughs> they, do, they do a wonderful job. Let the record show that Vegilution needs more grandmothers. I, yeah, I really think that we do need more grandmothers here on the farm and personally, my two grandmothers have some of the best stories that I've that I've ever heard, and I think I think it's so valuable that everyone should just kind of sit down if they still have the opportunity to sit down with their their grandmother and I just, grandparents as well, um, anyone to just kind of listen to their story about the past. Um, and in my case, it usually always ends up talking about food um, around huge family dinners or you know what kind of food they used to eat, what kind of food they used to cook, and. I always love hearing stories about people that I've never met that they talk about, like my great-grandparents, um, about food that they used to cook. And that's what the Farmcast is trying to do. We're trying to collect these stories. It's um, oral history in the, in the new world. You know, sitting here talking to Pat, I was actually thinking, man, when I go home, I just really want to sit down with my grandma and record some of her, some of her stories. Um, and you're right, it so often does come back to food, um, which is just, you can't even argue that it's it's a great connector, and it's a great, it, ho it holds so many memories for people. Well, I just want to thank you all for listening again to this episode of The Farmcast. Be on the lookout for the next episode to release next Monday. From The Farmcast, I'm Dana Shinners. And I'm Emily Schwing. 